Corporations have a responsibility, not to their employees, not to the communities where they produce their products, and certainly not to the consumers who purchase their products. They have only one responsibility, to make money for their investors. That singular purpose, to make money no matter what, has created some of the most lethal, irresponsible, and dangerous corporate structures in the world. Whether it's the pharmaceutical industry, the fossil fuel industry, the plastic industry, the pesticide industry, the wireless industry, or even the food industry, many of today's giant corporations are literally killing people in pursuit of profit. This is a worldwide problem that the public must find a way to solve before it's too late. And this is Green Street. Welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, public health and medical professionals, authors, engineers, activists, reporters, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what's really going on around you, how it affects your health and safety, and how you can protect yourself and your family in this increasingly toxic world. Today on Green Street, we'll be talking about corporate greed and how the obligation to pursue profit over all other things is literally driving corporations to act as robots, putting aside ethics, humanity, compassion, and every other thing that makes us human, and literally killing people in pursuit of that singular goal. It's not a new story, really. The scandals are well known. DES, asbestos, tobacco, hormone replacement therapy, Vioxx, and more recently, the scandal of how energy companies have sought to undermine efforts to combat climate change. The list of corporate bad actors is long and getting longer. But one medical professional has taken on the challenge with a new book called Death by Corporation. And in it, he argues that the very structure of corporations their charters in particular, with their mandates to seek profit over all other obligations, have inevitably led us to where we find ourselves today. If we could only change the way corporations are chartered, he argues, we can change the trajectory we're on, and we better do it sooner rather than later. Dr. Brian Munch is our guest on today's Green Street Show, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? As usual, there's lots to choose from. Um, the first one was published in the Washington Post, and the title is, What is Wet Bulb Temperature? A measurement long known to climate scientists has begun creeping into the public consciousness as extreme weather conditions force us to reflect on what conditions humans can withstand. In a summer of record-breaking heat in many places, severe humidity has made the outdoors feel particularly unbearable. While there are numerous ways to measure climate conditions, some experts say it's time to start talking about wet bulb temperature. Temperature tells us a physical attribute of the atmosphere. Heat index is about comfort. Wet bulb is about survival. Wet bulb temperature accounts for both heat and humidity, like the standard temperature measurement you see on your weather app. It reflects what the combination means for the human body's ability to cool down. As the air around you gets more humid, your body is less able to sweat effectively, meaning you can't cool off as successfully. That's why dry heat feels more tolerable than extreme humidity. If the wet bulb temperature reading is higher than our body temperature, that means that we cannot cool ourselves to a temperature tolerable for humans by evaporating sweat, and that basically means you can't survive. 
The term wet bulb comes from a way the measurement can be taken by wrapping a piece of wet cloth around the end of the thermometer to see how much evaporation can decrease the temperature. The idea here is that you and I are essentially wet bulbs. We cool ourselves by evaporation. As the globe warms and bodies of water evaporate at higher rates than before, raising humidity levels, wet bulb temperatures will continue to rise. A study on wet bulb temperatures published in Science Advances last year bore an alarming title, The Emergence of Heat and Humidity Too Severe for Human Tolerance. It found that some places on Earth have already experienced conditions too hot and humid for human survival. Radley Horton, one of the study's authors and a climate scientist at Columbia University's Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory, explained that the study reported for the first time that there are places in the Persian Gulf and Pakistan that have already crossed a wet bulb temperature of 95 degrees Fahrenheit. That kind of temperature would make it impossible to sweat enough to avoid overheating, organ failure, and eventual death. Even for someone in the best shape, in the shade, relaxing with an endless supply of water and not wearing heavy clothes. He said these lethal combinations of temperature and humidity continue to be possible, even probable, as the climate continues to change. The general public is learning about wet bulb temperature now because during the summer of extreme weather, air temperature isn't the only thing that's increasing. The amount of moisture in the air is also climbing. As we try to understand these novel heat conditions, Stanford University climate scientist Noah Diffenbaugh says, certainly over the last decade, we've seen an increasing awareness that where the purpose is to understand risk to human health, including the humidity, is important, he said. And wet bulb temperature is one of the most direct ways to do that. The overlap of heat and humidity is the best predictor of human suffering, Horton said. As the climate continues to heat up, looking at the wet bulb temperature before going outside to work or exercise could save you from heat stroke or worse. Air conditioning is especially useful when the wet bulb temperature gets high. So places that may soon experience unprecedented heat and humidity should consider how many of their residents have access to air conditioning and whether their electric grids can handle so many AC units. Locations that haven't historically had major demands on their electric grids during heat waves also need to start asking themselves how they can become more resilient. The question is, are they resilient to that midday humid heat event were nights to stay hot? And is there a risk of the power going out at precisely those times when it's a life and death issue for a lot of people? So we're all, we I, I, are all wet bulbs. It's really fascinating, but it's scary, too, because... You know, we're getting it. The temperature is going up. It seems to be more humid all the time. I understand the atmosphere can carry more moisture, moisture when it gets hot. How much longer do we have? I hate to ask that question. <laughs> well, Good what's Lord. really interesting is that I have never heard of this before, this wet bulb temperature. No, I've never heard and of it either. It's, it's fascinating that we now have so many things that are just in our environment today that could kill us. This wet bulb temperature is really life and death. Interesting. Okay, what else you got? Okay, so there's another really important article uh, that came out this week. Uh, it was actually published by EWG, and the article comes from EWG.org News. And the title is, Wireless Radiation Exposure for Children Should Be Hundreds of Times Lower Than Current Federal Limits. Peer-reviewed study by the Environmental Working Group recommends stringent health-based exposure standards for both children and adults for radiofrequency radiation emitted from wireless devices. EWG's Children's Guideline is the first of its kind and fills a gap 
left by federal regulators. The study, published in the journal Environmental Health, relies on the methodology developed by the Environmental Protection Agency to assess human health risks arising from toxic chemical exposures. EWG scientists have applied the same methods to radiofrequency radiation from wireless devices, including cell phones and tablets. EWG recommends the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, adjust its woefully outdated health standards for wireless radiation, last revised a quarter century ago, well before wireless devices became ubiquitous, heavily used appliances synonymous with modern life. The recommendation draws on data from a landmark 2018 study from the National Toxicology Program, or NTP, one of the largest long-term studies on the health effects of radiofrequency radiation exposure. The NTP studies examined the health effects of 2G and 3G wireless radiation and found that there was clear evidence of a link between exposure to radiofrequency radiation and heart tumors in laboratory animals. Similar results were reported by a team of Italian scientists from the Ramazzini Institute. EWG's new guidelines, the first developed in the U.S. to focus on children's health, recommend that children's exposure overall be 200 to 400 times lower than the whole body exposure limit set by the FCC in 1996. For adults, EWG recommends a whole body SAR limit 20 to 40 times lower than the federal limit. EWG scientists say that more research is needed on the health impacts of the latest generation of communication technology, such as 5G. In the meantime, EWG's recommendation for strict lower exposure limits for all radio frequency sources, especially for children. When the FCC established its radio frequency radiation limits following the passage of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, relatively few Americans and likely no children owned and used cell phones. It has been 25 years since the FCC set its limits for radiofrequency radiation. With multiple sources of radiofrequency radiation in everyday environment, including Wi-Fi, wireless devices, and cell towers, protecting children's health from wireless radiation exposure should be a priority for the FCC. We have grave concerns over the outdated approach the federal government has relied on to study the health effects of cell phone radiation and set its current safety limit and advice for consumers, said EWG President Ken Cook. Government guidelines are a quarter century old and were established at a time when wireless devices were not a constant feature of the lives of nearly every American, including children. Reviewing 5G and other aspects of wireless technology should be the focus of public health agencies, noted Cook. Quote, it is long past time the federal government made exposure to 5G wireless devices safe. We strongly believe those exposures deserve far more investigation and scientific rigor than has been applied to date. Well, I'm really glad to see EWG getting into this fight finally. Finally, you know, yeah. It's been, it's been a while that we were hoping that they would jump in. Of course, wireless radiation is something we talk about pretty much on every, sh every, show, every show here on yeah. Green Street because it's so important. Right. Uh, and, and so few people know about it, especially that, that groundbreaking you know, National Institutes of Health study that proved that it, causes, right. you know, it can cause cancer. We got a few minutes more. What else? Okay, you got? great. This is the last one. It was published by EE e. News, written by Ariel Wittenberg and E.A. Crunden, and the title is "Burden Falls on Exposed People as EPA Weighs PFAS Rules." Breast cancer doesn't run in his family, 
But that didn't prevent Tom Kennedy's diagnosis with the disease five years ago, and it won't stop the cancer, now in his brain and spine, from killing him. Kennedy, 49, blames the tap water he drank for more than a decade before learning it was contaminated with the chemical compound Gen X. Now terminally ill, the Verizon consultant from Wilmington, North Carolina, says he hopes something can be done to get Gen X out of the water his wife and two daughters still use to bathe before they fall sick too. Part of a family of chemicals known as PFAS, or PFAS, Gen X has been linked to liver and blood problems as well as certain types of cancer. But EPA, tasked with regulating contaminants in drinking water, has no action planned to immediately crack down on the compound. Rather, the agency's efforts to regulate per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances in drinking water are focused on just two chemicals, PFOA and PFOS. Even though many toxicologists and health experts want EPA to regulate all PFAS together as a class, many Americans could be drinking contaminated water for years after EPA finalizes limits on PFOA and PFOS. Researchers estimate that up to 80 million Americans are exposed to PFAS in their drinking water. Attorney Rob Billet represents some of them. His struggle to get DuPont to take responsibility for PFOA-contaminated drinking water in Parkersburg, West Virginia, prompted him to write a book, Exposure, and was the subject of the 2019 Hollywood thriller Dark Waters. The reality is that the burden falls on the exposed people, he said. If we keep this focus on one chemical at a time, we are encouraging situations like what we see with Gen X. EPA officials say they are painfully aware that the agency's actions are leaving some communities behind. Radhika Fox, who leads EPA's Office of Water, said that the agency wants to protect people from PFAS, but that figuring it out will take time. I share the frustrations people have with the EPA sometimes wanting us to move faster, said Fox, who also co-chairs the agency's newly created PFAS Council. All I can say to communities that are suffering is we are moving expeditiously, but we want to have good process and we want to have a foundation in science where we are most protective of public health. Prized for their nonstick and water-resistant properties, PFAS are found in a range of items from household products to firefighting foam and solar panels. But regulating PFAS is not simple, in no small part because there are thousands of compounds. That does not fit well with how EPA usually regulates drinking water contaminants, typically waiting for science on a chemical's harm before writing standards to limit them at the tap. Many individual PFAS have not been widely studied and their health risks are unknown. The most well-examined compounds are PFOA and PFOS, largely due to data collected from people exposed to those chemicals. The agency aims to finalize limits on the two chemicals around 2024. But even that timeline could be optimistic, as EPA has not regulated any new contaminants in drinking water since 1996. Rather than taking a whack-a-mole approach and regulating PFAS compounds one by one, some scientists and advocates, including former EPA staffers, say the agency should regulate PFAS as a class of chemicals. PFAS, they say, are too dangerous to wait for proof. This month, EPA signaled it might consider a class-based approach by putting all PFAS together on a list of contaminants of concern other than PFOA and PFOS, which are already under scrutiny. But Fox said the agency hasn't settled on an approach yet. Anybody would think that the companies responsible for this in the first place are the ones who should be paying for it, but they aren't. So the EPA is going to expeditiously move and hope to get some sort of a regulation by 2024. Just on those two? 
on PFOA and PFOS. You know, meanwhile, everybody is exposed. Well, and this is a good segue to our interview today. This is These are corporations that know doing, that their products cause doing, cancer in humans. They the, know that they've contaminated drinking water sources. Doing the wrong thing for profit. There you go. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. The world's biggest corporations are not seeking to control the world. They already do. They wield their power in a multitude of ways with one and only one goal, making money. If the law gets in the way, they break it. If regulations restrict their activities, they cheat. If they are faced with scientific truth, they deny, obfuscate, and then just outright lie. If journalists or investigative reporters find a problem, they smear and discredit. Any good deed they perform is done strictly for public relations. They give money to groups in return for public political support for their agenda, which is, of course, aimed at helping them make more money. This is the way corporations behave, and behave they must. If a corporate leader was to do or even suggest doing something because it was the right thing to do, they would most likely be fired or put on probation, because doing the right thing is not the job of corporations. The singular, one and only job of corporations is to make money. This relentless pursuit of money inevitably leads to bad behavior, and sometimes that bad behavior includes killing people. But from the corporation's point of view, if people get killed along the way, it's just part of doing business. Corporate lawyers will defend it. In the event they lose, the insurance companies will pay for it. But the corporations will never stop. Today on Green Street, Patty and I are delighted to be joined by Dr. Brian Munch, author of a new book entitled Death by Corporation. Dr. Munch is an anesthesiologist who got involved in discovering how corporations were making people sick when he began to see odd things in his own practice. Here's our interview with Dr. Brian Munch. It wasn't until I started seeing in my own practice what I thought was really un unusual instances of health outcomes that just, just defied explanation and de defied what I thought would be acceptable public policy. For instance, mm -hmm. one day my assignment as an anesthesiologist at a hospital was to provide life support and anesthesia for three infants, all of whom were being irradiated for brain cancer. Mm. And I thought, here I've got underneath my care in one morning three infants between the ages of one and a half and three and a half, all of whom have brain cancer. I thought, this just can't possibly be explained or normal just by uh, the roll of the dice. Mm -hmm. Something's going on here. Mm -hmm. And then, as I mentioned in my book, when I had this very obviously traumatic and gut-wrenching experience of having to face my, my daughter's diagnosis of breast cancer at the prime age of 27, mm. when she and I started studying the literature to try and figure out what was the best course of treatment for her, we stumbled across all this information that, that gave us this clear message. 80% of cancer or more is related to environmental contamination. Mm -hmm. And you have to put into that basket 
things like what we eat and what we breathe because those are affected by our environment. So about the only thing that isn't an environmental exposure is a genetic influence. Mm -hmm. So you, you add that up and what the situation is, 80 to 90 percent of cancer is environmentally caused and the remainder is, is a genetic propensity. So then I, I started thinking, cancer is probably the most dramatic diagnosis and the, the most life-threatening and obviously in many cases fatal. Uh-huh. And it's related to primarily the environment that we're all exposed to. Why aren't we doing anything about this? And then I started thinking about the fact that there's so, there's so much business involved in diagnosing and treating cancer, especially treating cancer, mm-hmm. but there is virtually no business activity in preventing cancer. But that's what any human being who is rational would far prefer to have their cancer prevented than they would to have their cancer treated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Then I started reading about what corporations role in all of this is. And I started to notice this pattern that corporations embrace a business model that all too often just assumes that it's okay for them to not only devastate people's health, but actually kill them. And it seems to be accepted practice. So I started digging into the history of some of these corporate debacles, the lead industry, the asbestos industry, the radiation industry, and it became clear that There is really a corporate mindset that allows individuals in these companies to actually perpetrate these kinds of business models. I don't know how they sleep at night, but apparently enough of them can do this that it doesn't bother their conscience to the point where it just keeps happening. And the more I read about business practices, the more I realized this is almost ubiquitous. It isn't. It isn't an exception, it's more the rule. You know, we have a friend who's, um, who, who works in the corporate world, in the financial part of the corporate world, and he said that the, the CEOs of these companies that are doing this harm are all sociopaths. He says they, they really look for people who are not normal, who don't have consciences, who, you know, who can just go ahead and do this, and bottom line is the only thing that they look at. They're not moved emotionally by anything. And they, they are they are sociopaths. I mean you say psychopaths in the boardroom in your in your book, hmm. one of your chapters. I'm like I'm wondering why that's not the first chapter. <laughs> well, it, it may very well deserve to be the first chapter. Uh, from a, a clinician standpoint, the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath is really only one of degree. The kinds of dysfunctional thought processes are are virtually the same. Uh But as I said in that chapter on psychopaths in the boardroom, there are plenty of studies that show that the psychological disorder of psychopathy is actually well overly represented in uh, the business elite compared to the general population, almost on par as it is in prison populations. And others, other researchers have found that, in fact, it's not a matter of uh, companies picking the wrong characters for these kinds of exalted positions, but, in fact, those positions themselves tend to foster the development of characteristics of psychopathy. So it's not so much the wrong individuals are in charge, it's that once individuals get put in positions of power like that, they start to change. They become more unethical. They think that they're exempt from normal rules and regulations of human behavior. 
they start to think that they're special. They start to lose their ability to see that they're still part of the rest of, the, of society and the rest of the world. So rather than, than focusing on getting better candidates in that position, I think that, that the issue is more we need to reform the, the structure of corporations. And I, I didn't give this perhaps as much print as it should have had, but there are things we can do to reform how corporations are formed and their charters that I think can give us some hope. But most mm. of the book is obviously about trying to raise awareness as, as to how widespread this sort of corporate think is and how much damage it's doing across industries. Yeah. Across, you know, across sectors. You know, Brian, what has come to mind as you as I've been listening to you is that, you know, a lot of these CEOs or at least, you know, those executives who are high up in these companies wind up in our regulatory agencies in Washington. That's the old, you know, revolving door of, you know, working at, at the FDA, at the, you know, the EPA, the USDA, the FCC. These are all corporate executives who are making sure that, you know, they're not going to be regulated in a way that they would they would lose their profitability. Okay, well, to be fair, we have a societal worship of profit above almost everything else. And that's how we measure success is by profit. And we've got corporations whose primary responsibility is to their shareholders, not to the public. And I don't know whether you agree, Brian, but I've always felt as though on one side we've got these corporations whose job is to make money, not to protect people. Their job is to make money. On the other side, we've got the government whose job it is to make sure that whatever these corporations are doing to make money doesn't hurt people. And that's we've really seen a collapse of the government's ability structure, yep. to, to, to fulfill that role. I think it probably, maybe, maybe I'm naive, but I like to think that years ago, you know, we had men and women of good character in those places who truly, you know, truly wanted to fulfill that responsibility. And now those people are all gone. And as Patty said, they've been replaced by people from the industries that are supposed to be regulated. Well, corporate charters are an anathema to social responsibility. Yep. Hmm. And in researching the book, it was interesting to go back and look at the history of corporations, which basically were the brainchild of the monarchs uh, of England in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries. The American Revolution was as much a matter of toppling the rule of British corporations as it was overthrowing the rule of the British crown. Mm-hmm. And, and so... There's a long history of uh, what you might call corporate ascendancy in American society, but we didn't start out that way. The founding fathers had a real aversion to that. And in fact, uh, that was pretty much the sentiment until around 1886 with the landmark decision by the Supreme Court of Santa Clara County versus the Southern Pacific Railroad, which became the notorious precedent for the legal concept of corporate personhood. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And has been used repeatedly afterwards yeah. to shield corporations from social responsibility and, and stymie regulation. So that's when things started to, t- to deteriorate. Um, we got a bounce back from that during the, during the Depression and the era of FDR. 
But then things came back like a roaring wildfire in terms of corporate power under the Reagan administration, and we've been going downhill in that direction yeah. ever since. Yeah, I was just going to say, and, and things have just gotten worse and worse and worse. All right, yeah. since you are a, a physician, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the pharmaceutical industry um, and this debacle that just happened over the past couple of weeks with this drug for Alzheimer's, you know, with the full-page ads in the New York Times that they spent millions for and blah, blah, blah. What's going on? Well, in case, in case there's anyone out there naive enough to think otherwise, People need to know that the purpose of a pharmaceutical company, like other corporations, is to make money, and that's it. I mean, yeah. corporations in the, pharma in the pharmaceutical sector want the public to think that they are responsible for these wonderful innovations that have cured diseases and increased life expectancy, made our lives less painful, and on, on and on and on. But the sad fact is, the purpose of every one of these companies is to make money, period, the end, and that's all there is to it. So the couple of chapters that I wrote on the pharmaceutical industry give a very chilling history of what they have been willing to do to make money. Uh, the recent example that you just cited of the approval of this Alzheimer's drug, which does not seem to work, is just the latest. But it's not any <laughs> means the, the worst. You can go back to some of the first drugs ever made, which are uh, some of these hormone drugs like DES, which was diethyl sylvesterol. That was the first synthetic estrogen made in 1938. But it was jumped upon by a number of pharmaceutical companies uh, as an opportunity to make money because a, a lot of doctors thought, well, this is, this is a way to prevent uh, miscarriages. And so it kind of got off the ground uh, its popularity became fairly widespread as a means of doing that. But then it became clear that, in fact, it was also a, a serious risk for cancer, not only in the mother herself, but also yeah, her, 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 daughters. her daughters. Yeah, her daughters, yeah. So it was the, it was the first example of multi-generational mm -hmm. impact. Mm -hmm. When this became apparent, you would like to have thought that the companies that were, were caught holding the bag in terms of distributing and marketing and profiting off the of carcinogen would have said, okay, wow, boy, did we ever make a mistake. Right, we'll take but this right off the market. Let's not do that again. Uh -huh. No, <laughs> that isn't what they did at all. Eventually, after, after fighting back, and DES was, was given the ceremonial burial that it deserved, like so often happens, they just took their market to, uh, overseas, to other countries, other countries that hadn't had the same sort of regulation. So that's a pattern that we see over and over again in the pharmaceutical industry for sure, but in other indus industries as well. Yeah, that, yeah. I was just going to say pharmaceuticals when, are not the only ones who are doing that. Pesticide when, industry when, does that, and yeah. When it came time to be held accountable, although far too late in the United States, they didn't have any sort of... Uh, come to Jesus moment, oh, hey, we've got to stop killing people. They took their business overseas and started doing the same thing. And that sort of pattern or template has been played out over and over and over again, including with the narcotics industry, and that, I devote most of the, of the second chapter to that. But uh, all too often we see that 
in fact, when, when finally there is enough societal pressure and, and eventually government regulation to bring a, corp, a legal corporate practice to an end, that still is not the end of that practice. They just take it where they can hide it better or they're not as, as uh, obviously exposed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's criminal, but they never get, they never get punished. punished for it. No. Well, that's the problem with corporate charters is, you know, as Mitt Romney famously said, well, corporations are people, my friend, hmm. except for the fact that they seem to be immune from the responsibility that individuals are held to. Yeah, if they're going to be so, people, they should be held to that, to that same standard, right? They should be put in jail, all those sociopathic CEOs. Well, if you look at the history of, of the legal and regulatory accounting of industries like the lead industry, uh, the asbestos industry, and so many others. Very rarely do corporate executives ever get uh, hauled into court. Even more rarely do they get convicted of anything. And the corporations themselves really never have any consequence beyond what the bad publicity might do to their stock price. And so... In, in terms of what are some of the solutions here, I mentioned that Elizabeth Warren's proposed bill, I think it's called the Corporate Accountability Act, mm-hmm. suggested that, in fact, corporate charters can be changed so that corporate accountability can be enforced and that you can end corporate charters for misbehavior. We can legally bring a corporate charter to an end for bad behavior. So why don't we ever do that? Why don't we? Hmm. Well, <laughs> that's what we need to start asking ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 it's... so in, the, in the case of a, a Purdue pharmaceutical company that, that is um, not solely, but is the focal point of, of industry's responsibility for the opioid crisis, which you may have read took even more people during the pandemic than it had in previous mm. years, yeah. like 90,000 mm. deaths yeah. last year. Yeah, mm. we did read that in the Times this, this week, actually. Yeah. Why, why does Purdue Pharmaceutical have a corporate charter still? Now, it obviously brings up all these other questions. Is why do all the executives of Purdue Pharma really essentially suffer absolutely nothing, not even a loss of income? That's right. But in terms of the, corpor- the corporate structure itself, why is there still even a business that is named Purdue Pharma? Why wasn't that dismantled? And who would do that, Brian? Who, who has the authority to, to revoke that corporate charter? Well, because we have, haven't really done that, nobody seems to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't mean we can't. Now, if you're as old as I am, you obviously know that uh, some businesses were completely dismantled. Um, because of monopolistic power, AT&T, for example. Um, They were forced by antitrust laws to divest themselves from multiple types of business activities. And and the discussion about whether or not we should start bringing antitrust action against social media companies is certainly long overdue. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, we better start bringing antitrust action. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, if, we I, I can dis- we do. if we can dismantle through antitrust some of these massive corporations, why can't we dismantle them for other reasons besides monopolies? That's a really good question. 
I, you know, I'm not an attorney. I'm certainly not a corporate leader, so I don't know. <laughs> God forbid. Um, hmm. So I don't know the mechanism. Yeah. But it, it's beyond it's beyond any doubt that we couldn't create a reasonable mechanism for dismantling a corporation, distributing assets or whatever. Um, well, in fact, predatory capitalism does that all the time. You, you see private investment firms who specialize in attacking, if you will, public corporations and basically selling off their assets for their own profitability. But, uh, I mean, we've seen that activity for decades. Mm -hmm. The government could take a little bit of a lesson from predatory capitalism <laughs> and figure out how to dismantle, dismantle a corporation that has so clearly violated public trust that it needs to come to an end. You know, it's, it's interesting that in a lot of cases we're addressing this problem in a whack-a-mole fashion, right? I mean, we have a problem with a particular corporation, whether it's a, you know, a pharmaceutical company or a food company or a pesticide company or a, a lead company or a tobacco company, and we see that. But we don't look at it holistically, and I think that's the, that's the genius of your book, uh, is to say... This, this is a pattern, folks. This is, you know, this is not just happening in in the fashion industry where we've got, you know, factories overseas that are employing people for almost nothing and 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 not providing safe working conditions, or we've got, and, you know, po and poisoning, you know, the environment with their with their practices. Yeah, or we or we've got, you know, we've got chemical companies that are always searching for new markets and putting their chemicals, which are known to be harmful to humans, in product after product after product and it's just you know I, I think the idea that we need to look at corporations in a different light and realize that this is a, a problem that will not solve itself um, and and well it, 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 if there's perhaps another thing from the book is that it's not one business it's not one industry it's not one country this is a systemic problem that infects the nations throughout the world even in uh, dictatorships. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in fact, I point out that as of, I think it was 2016, of the world's 100 biggest economies, 69 of them were corporations. Only 31 were, were nations. So wow. this, is a this is a massive global problem. Wow. Uh, and and it, it, it demands a, a systemic response that that transcends even individual nations' laws. This is something that the United States has to get together with Europe, with, uh, with Canada, with South America, and address. I wonder if the idea, the current idea to establish a minimum tax for corporations by international agreement might be the beginning of that kind of thought. Well, and you know, just recently we went in exactly the opposite direction in, re in reducing corporate tax rates. Mm-hmm back in 2017, and, and there's discussion about, there's, there's all kinds of hand-wringing about, oh, should we bring corporate tax, tax rates up four percentage points from this uh, ridiculous law in 2017? Yes, we absolutely should, but we should do much more than that. We should start looking at how these corporations are chartered in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in Europe, they do have, they do have better protections you know, from toxic exposures 
And, you know, I've always thought, you know, I, I teach, I'm a visiting scholar at a university here, I teach in the College of Nursing and Public Health. And, you know, I always talk about the, the United States has much, much more lenient laws about exposure to chemicals in, you know, in profitable, you know, industries like the beauty industry and food industry and so on. And I said, why is that? Why is it? Do they care more about their people or is it they have socialized medicine and they have to actually pay out of their pockets for sick people? Mm, I don't know. Well, have you ever thought about it, that? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the dichotomy between consumer protection or uh, let's say environmental protection attitudes in Europe compared to the United States. That all started to head in that direction around 1990, mm -hmm. when in fact, up until that point from, say, 1960 up to 1990, the United States, at least for its time, probably led the world in terms of env environmental consciousness. Now, this was well before the EPA was established, mm -hmm. and then in the, in the EPA's early infancy. So. It's not the. It's not like we we suddenly became environmentally aware. We started out small with the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the formation of the EPA around 1970, but that was really ahead of the rest of the world. But then around 1990, the attitude shifted, and and Europe started to adopt approach of that we call the precautionary principle. Yep or at least more so, the, re the precautionary principle, which states basically how much harm can we avoid? And the United States headed in the opposite direction, and you might summarize that with an attitude of how much harm can we tolerate? Right. And that's a completely different approach mm -hmm. to things like chemical exposures. Yep. Now, there is one, there is one fly in that sort of or portrayal of the situation, that is, the United States still has better clean air standards than Europe does. And in fact, things like uh, the percentage of the population in the United States that smokes is less than Europe. But that is one exception in a much broader landscape of environmental protection being much more a priority in European governments. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, we've had some successes here. We, you know, we were more successful in getting lead out of, out of gasoline. But you know, you can actually look at some of these things, like Herb Needleman. You know, he put his his career and his life on the line to do that. Um, spent years and years and years, uh, you know, in Congress testifying and meeting with legislators and so on to get lead out of gasoline. And, you know, he was a psychiatrist. I think he was based in Chicago. I'm not sure, but... You uh, know. Pittsburgh. Oh, Pits Pittsburgh. That, that's yeah. right. Pittsburgh. But I think he, he did research in Chicago and looked at the, you know, the, the youth and their how they get involved in criminal activities and linked it to, you know, to their lead exposure as, you know, as young children. There are some real environmental heroes. Yes, and, and he he's one, one of them. them. Yep, he's one of them. Uh, Dr. Claire Patterson was another. Mm -hmm. There aren't there aren't anywhere near as many as we would like. But part of of uh, what I wanted to depict in the book as well was a very consistent uh, pushback, if not outright assault, by industry against these people like Dr. Needleman and Dr. Patterson. Mm -hmm. They they tried they have tried over and over again to ruin the careers the credibility and the careers and the livelihoods of people yeah. who challenge them. 
Yep. And th- and that's been in every industry. That's been in the pharmaceutical industry. That's true. Maybe the worst example is uh, is Monsanto and their long history of trying to literally not only destroy individual scientists whose work challenges the safety of, of the whole GMO system and a lot of the pesticides that they manufacture. Right. Roundup. But right. they, mm-hmm. they, they have tr- attacked and tried to ruin entire agencies, like the International Agency... Uh, on Research for Cancer, IARC. Yep. The agency... Uh, World Health Organization Agency on Cancer. Mm-hmm. Monsanto tried to literally destroy one of the most well-respected and scientifically credible panels that has ever been established because of their declaration that uh, glyphosate was a problem human carcinogen in 2015. Mm-hmm. The viciousness with which they went after these people that had challenged their, their profit model is just breathtaking. I don't know. So how do we move forward? Is it about education? Is it about educating the public and having them basically choose not to use these products, you know, go in a different direction so that it, it affects the, the bottom line of these these corporate companies? Well, we have to go in, in multiple directions at the same time. When the physicians group that uh, we formed back in 2007 in Utah, we had several meetings right at the beginning discussing what would our strategy be like. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we were advised by a friend of mine who was a state legislator at the time. She said, and I'll never forget this, she said, don't bother trying to smooth with any of these state legislators behind the scenes. They will just blow you off. You will be stunned at the basis upon which they make decisions and that they pass legislation. She said it's oftentimes just a matter of personal uh, grievances, personal vendettas towards other other legislators. Forget attempting to, uh, behind the scenes, coddle up to these people and affect change. She said go directly to the public. Mm-hmm. And so we developed a strategy that uh, was targeted towards educating the public, and we actually kind of predicted that it would take us 10 years to do that. And I think in retrospect, we achieved widespread public awareness of the problem with air pollution in Utah much earlier than 10 years, probably after the sixth or seventh year, to the point where air pollution was never on anybody's radar, despite how awful it could be. And it is now consistently the number one issue of concern among Utah voters. Now, that doesn't mean that Utah, being a very politically conservative state, does all the things that we should. We clearly don't. In fact, we're one of the worst. But what it does show is that the public can be moved by education. What we haven't achieved here in Utah is the connection between public awareness and and public opinion and translating that into actually legislation that makes a difference. But I think you simultaneously have to attack it from just about every angle possible, and education is the first thing. And that's why I wrote the book, is so that people can start thinking about this, this exposes a systemic problem with how corporations dominate economic activity throughout the world and the dire consequences that get more dire every year. I mean, you look at the climate crisis, which is rapidly becoming a climate catastrophe right before our eyes. That's almost entirely the result of corporate profiteering, and is still so. Uh, the recent revelations about what 
ExxonMobil is still doing behind the scenes, and the Koch brothers, and the natural gas industry. They are still prioritizing far and away their own ability to make money and the future of mankind be damned. That you mentioned that the gas industry, that's pretty close to what you know, we're, we're dealing with right here. I mean, we're, we're going to be decommissioning uh, and the Indian Point nuclear power plant, which is within 50 miles of, well, where we live. And certainly New York City is within 50 miles. And the industry that owned it has now sold it to a company that has a very poor track record. Uh, and they've never decommissioned a nuclear power plant before. And we have some serious, serious issues because there are three very major gas pipelines running underneath the property within 105 feet of some of the most important structures on the nuclear power plant site. And they have all of their spent fuel rods in pools. None of them have been put into these casks um, to be buried. So... It's a catastrophic situation waiting to to happen, and all they all they need to do is drop one of those fuel rods <laughs> before they can get it in one of those uh, casks, or, or permanent casks. Right, and you've got disaster on your hands for at least fifty million people. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And what about if we have a uh, if we have a rupture of one of the pipelines? I mean, one of these pipelines is a fairly new pipeline, the AIM pipeline, that is intended to go from Pennsylvania oil, um, not oil, but gas fields up through New England and up to the Canadian Maritimes, where they ship it overseas, where they can sell it for much more money. And so they went from a 12-inch to a 24-inch pipe, and. You know, who checked the seams on those pipes? Well, and if you have a conflagration of that pipeline, mm. you're going to have disaster on your hands. It's going to affect hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. So, you know, this just is... Like, a, this just is, like California had a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. I want to just mention the, the chapters in your book. You talk about the pharmaceuticals, which I wanted to focus on. Lead, which we know, I think most people have, are, are more familiar with it because of the Flint, Michigan situation. Tobacco, you mentioned. Killing fields. I'm not sure where you were going because I didn't look at that chapter. Happy Meal, I guess, is our, you know, our fast food industry. Guns, Union Carbide, the, the Bhopal incident there, which killed you know all those people in India. It's probably those... about, probably ultimately maybe in the neighborhood of two hundred thousand people whose lives were either ended or or absolutely destroyed by that particular episode of corporate cost cutting. Yeah. So it's not just that they're, they're making a product that is harming our environment and then thereby harming us or harming us directly if it's a you know, product that we're using or something that we're eating or something that we're living with in our homes, but it's also cutting costs uh, you know, when, when the consequences could be catastrophic, like the Indian Point nuclear power plant. I was just listening to a documentary about Oregon's wildfires last year. And apparently there is emerging evidence that uh, their power company didn't turn off the power to a lot of these power lines that ended up being responsible for an entire uh, dominoes effect of wildfires that lit up the entire state last September. Um, so we're, we're living in a world with, uh, say, 
one nuclear power plant gone bad, i.e., think of Fukushima, uh-huh. which that particular power plant gone, having gone bad has, has vir- virtually contaminated the entire Pacific Ocean, by the way. Correct. And the, and the coast there, your coast, the West yeah. Coast. Yeah. And, and I, I can't even begin to think about what the radioactive uh, isotopes would be in, in the flesh of any fish that are now caught throughout the Pacific. But uh, you think of Fukushima, you think of the power company in Oregon, you think of Indian Point, you think of Monsanto. We're in a situation now where one corporation, one corporation's mistakes or greed or willingness to make money at any cost can have global consequences and and literally not just millions of people can be harmed and some of them die but billions Mm -hmm. so and and then you talked about other uh issues like cyber security and cyber attack cyber attacks where the, the vulnerability of just one corporation can have massive repercussions across nations okay so what's the good news (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, that's all right. So what's the good news? I want to know. All right. So um, thank you for being our guest here, uh, you know, on Green Street Radio. It has been really enlightening and frightening, frightening and depressing and to some <laughs> to some extent. Um, but I think that your book is, is really a, a must read, especially for young parents today. Uh, I feel that young parents are the ones who you know, the, the one segment of our population that actually makes change, you know, to in order to protect their children. We kind of target parents of young children in all of our initiatives because we actually see them change to save their children or to protect their children. I would love to build more optimism into the book. Yeah, could um, you do that? <laughs> Wait, why didn't but, you do that? Well, my, my wife accuses me of, Never wake him up in the morning without something to be angry about. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when we when we talk, we give presentations. Every you say, people always say, "How do you sleep at night?" Mm, good question. You know, or you know, when I'm speaking about something, they'll say, you know, they say, "Well, you know, just talk about all the things you were." I said, "No, no, 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 no. We need to just focus on a single thing because it can be overwhelming." Well, I think I, I think towards the end when we try and talk about solutions. Um, I think if there's a take-home message as, as far as can we solve any of this, the answer is yes. And it's, it's not a matter of that we have to come up with a technology that no one has invented yet to save the world. All we have to really come up with is some common sense, some empathy, and a little bit of political will. Uh, again, if you, if you read the details of Elizabeth Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act, there's enough there that could start to restructure how corporations are are forced to operate i.e much more in the public good rather than in their own their own personal and private profitability that's that's not really all that far off we could get to the point where we all understand that corporations can't be allowed the free reign that they have enjoyed and that all it would take would be some rearranging of some paperwork Boy, that sounds awfully uh, simple. And, and if we did that, we, there's so many problems that we could improve and some of them solve. So it's, it's some empathy for each other. It's uh, a little bit of compassion for those people who have been the most harmed. It's a little bit of common sense. It's a little bit of accepting the evidence. But it's, 
far and away just a little bit of political will. The book is called Death by Corporation. Our guest today has been Dr. Brian Munch. I can't thank you enough for being our guest today. It really has been fascinating and, uh, and interesting. And, and you know what? I think we can do something about this. Uh, I share your, your glimmer of optimism. <laughs> you know. It was just a my glimmer, wife. though, Brian. It was just a glimmer. <laughs> my my okay. wife likes to put it this way. She says, I'm engaged in a constant struggle against happiness. You've been listening to Green Street, and our guest has been Dr. Brian Munch, anesthesiologist and author of Death by Corporation. Uh, we're running a little short on time. We're not going to have time for the inbox this week, but if you have environmental questions for Patty, anything about cleaning products, water filters, air fresheners, dry cleaners, paint, carpeting, baby furniture, wireless radiation, drop us a line at greenstreetradio.com. And by the way, if you missed any part of today's show, you can always catch it again on our website, greenstreetradio.com where you can submit your questions and also sign up for our newsletter. In case you missed it, last week our guest was Kyla Bennett from Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility talking about protecting whistleblowers at the EPA. And you can also catch that show on our website. That's going to do it for our show today. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well, see you next time.